Hello everybody and welcome to the Alien vs Predator Galaxy podcast. This is Aaron Percival. And this is Adam Zeller. And we are back for a specific episode. We're going to be talking Alien 3 and we're going to be talking the assembly cut of Alien 3. So for this episode, we're welcoming back a return guest. He was on seven, six years ago. Good God, that was a while back, actually. That was one of our earliest episodes. He is a man who played an enormous part in the reevaluation of, of Alien 3 in the fandom, in, in putting the alternate cut together. And, and more than that as well, you know, without him, we wouldn't have the knowledge, I think, of Alien that we do because of his work. So please welcome back Mr. Charles DeLozarica. Thank you for joining us again. Thank you. And thank you for pronouncing my name correctly. I appreciate it. I'm, I'm always trying to be careful with yours. <laughs> Don't always get it, but I try, and that, that's what counts. That's what they tell me. That was an excellent delivery of my last name. Thank you. I'll work on the spelling, though. Right, please, but you're getting there. You're getting there. I think it was just yeah, one. Yeah, thanks for joining us. Although it might have been the only time in the entire question list that I actually spelt your name, so that makes it even worse. <laughs> yeah, it bloody was as well. Yeah. Well, Charles is a man I can I can never give enough credit to, and I will always appreciate the the chance to uh, kiss his ass and let him know how much we appreciate him. And thankful of, of you taking the time to um, come and chat to a couple of nerds on the internet. But after what I read about uh, Tom Skerritt saying to you, I don't feel so bad about bothering you and being a nerd. Wait, what did Tom Skerritt say to me? It, it was in the um, it was in the Digital Bits interview where you were uh-huh. going on about asking all nerdy questions of Tom and Roger Christensen. And them giving you the, um, you know, the funny looks. Do you, dude, these are these are nerdy questions. I get that a lot, so I, I forget them when when I'm <laughs> presented with that with that phrasing. I kind of forget it because I get it a lot. Good. It, it makes me not feel so bad. Yeah, but it, it's different though because you are a nerd, so it's like nerd on nerd conversation. So true. Very true. Yeah, yeah. And even then, it's not it's not just the Alien franchise that you've had such an important part of, you know, sci-fi with all your work on Blade Runner as well. You know, you, you have had a hand in some of the seminal science fiction films. So I think I think you get super nerd credit. <laughs> well, I accept it with honor. Thank you. Did you also do the, the Legend alternate cut, right? Mm-hmm. That was early on when I first started working on DVDs and, and bonus features. On Legend, it was actually a friend of mine, J.M. Kenny, who made the documentary, the making of documentary of Legend. And my focus, because I was just starting out in the DVD world, was trying to track down the director's cut and then other little bits and pieces like storyboards and, and things like that. Obviously, the director's cut was a huge part of Legend. Of The whole point of that box set was to put the director's cut out. So that was a big responsibility, but it was ultimately pretty easy find. After a year or so of not being able to find it, it was almost like right under our noses the entire time. But yeah, Legend was, that was a long project. It was really hard, but I think it turned out pretty well, especially for fans of that movie, because if you're a Legend fan, I, it's, it's like manna from heaven. It's pretty incredible. Yeah, I've, I've also watched that one recently, and the, the director's cut is, is really good. So Ridley's done quite a bit of sci-fi now it would be cool to see him revisit fantasy sometime yeah well i mean he's kind of going back to the sort of shield and sword era anyway oh yeah Mer- merlin right isn't that no, what he's working no, on no he's um no it's that book adaptation with matt damon i thought he had a merlin project for disney that he well, he's doing the, the last duel yes, which is not it's not really sword and sandal it's more of a european history uh kind of like closer to the duelist which i think is interesting he started his feature directing career with the duelists and now he's on the last duel which is interesting bookends i don't know if mm. maybe he'll retire from features after that i doubt it but it's just that would be a very interesting sort of filmography to start with the duelists and, and have the last duel be uh, you know, towards yeah. the end 
Yeah, uh, I know he was, for years and years, he was trying to make Tristan and Isolde, which he eventually produced with Kevin Reynolds directing, but that was more of a traditional retelling of that story. His version was much more like heavy metal magazine, more Mobius kind of gritty fantasy. I think they found like a nuclear warhead under the ground at some point. So it was definitely not a traditional <laughs> old timey past fantasy. It was more of a cyber, not cyberpunk, but you know, like heavy metal magazine, kind of gritty. Fair enough. Oh, we're here today specifically to talk about Alien 3. But before we do, we start talking the assembly cut. Now, I wanted to just ask you about Alien 3 in general. I mean, it, it was your desire to do a behind the scenes on, on Alien 3 that made you take the job of tackling the entire bloody series. So, you know, what is it about Alien 3 that made you so willing to take on such a huge workload? And, and were you a fan of, of the theatrical release of the film? Well, I remember seeing the theatrical release. It was opening day at the uh, Avco Theater in Westwood in L.A. And I watched it. And you have to understand, I went into Alien 3 as a huge, huge fan of the first Alien. And I like Aliens, but it was just such a different beast from the first film in terms of it being much more action and kick ass and lock and load. Let's go kill some bugs. Different vibe entirely from the first film, but still incredibly entertaining and successful with just a lot of incredible, fun, iconic moments. So as, as someone who has kind of like had Alien imprinted on my brain is like, that's the alien universe I want to really stick to. Aliens was a departure and a fun departure, but Alien 3 looked like, oh, we're going to go back to kind of that haunted house gothic horror vibe of the original Alien. So I was looking forward to that, even though the trailers made it seem very actionated and even used James Horner's music from Aliens. But I watched it and, and immediately I, I just felt like this is a very interesting nightmarish take on Ripley's story and the alien universe. And it was very, no, no pun intended, but it was very alienating. It's like right off the bat, it's like you kill Hicks, you kill Newt. It's just like it's just it's vicious in terms of how it starts. And it doesn't really let up in terms of giving you any room to breathe. I mean, even Ripley has her brief little romance with Clemens. And that's nice because Charles Dance did a wonderful performance in that role. I'm not going to say it was sweet, but it was like this welcome breath of relief for Ripley, who's been surviving this ordeal for years and years. Even Clemens gets wiped out like, you know, like really shortly after we get to really like him as a character. What I was intrigued by with Alien 3 right off the bat was it sent a clear message to the audience that no one was safe. Like, no one was safe. And in the end, we found out no one was. Even Ripley, our hero, didn't make it. So I thought it was an incredibly bold film. And and before Alien, I actually saw Alien 3, I had been sort of like studying Fincher's music videos and commercials quite a bit because I was a huge fan of his work in that realm. So I kind of went in rooting for him. And then the film ended and the credits began. And the, my first thought I remember was, God, it's too bad he's never going to work again. Because <laughs> <laughs> I thought he was so incredibly talented. And this film was such a disaster in terms of, again, alienating the audience. It really was not popcorn fare. It wasn't what people wanted in May of 1992. It's like they wanted escapism. They wanted to get back to the aliens kind of like uh, action horror vibe, I guess. They wanted you know, Ripley to go in and you know wipe out the alien once and for all. Whatever that was supposed to be in their imaginations, it wasn't that. And even me, who loved the original film, it wasn't that either. So it was this kind of like very interesting, magnificent train wreck of a movie that I was just immediately fascinated by. It's like when you meet people and you know someone's got issues, but that, that intrigues you and you want to learn more about what those issues are. 
So it's kind of like, I feel like Alien 3 was that. Obviously in that moment, I didn't think, oh man, I hope there's some lost cut of the film that we can restore and put together because I wasn't even thinking about home video or director's cuts or anything back in 1992. So um, it was like a year or two after when this bootleg VHS tape came my way of the work print of Alien 3 that had been screened at, at that test screening. And that's when I realized, oh, there's all this other stuff there. And by the way, this was not, this did not include the opening scenes of Clemens walking on the beach or the ox or the, you know, the abattoir, like any, any of that stuff was not in this cut, but it was still longer and there was still more stuff in it. It was mostly the Gallic stuff, I think, wasn't it? There was a bit of, yeah, there was Gallic, but it was, but it didn't have any of that big epic swing weep that we had seen glimpses of in stills that had gotten out. And in the trailer, I think I think the that's right. Clemens on the, the surface was in the trailer, wasn't it? That's yeah. right. That's right. Anyway, so that that kind of got my imagination going about like what 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 else is there? What more could there be of Alien Three? And then and then that kind of thought just I filed away on a shelf in my brain and didn't even think about it for years and years until when I started working on DVD projects and we were working on the uh, 1999 the 20th anniversary Alien Legacy box set. My job is specifically Ridley's like supervisor on that set. So I was focused entirely on Alien, but I knew they were doing the other three movies for the box set. And I just happened to talk to someone at Fox who's no longer there. And I just said, you know, Alien 3 has a really interesting backstory and you can do a lot of really cool stuff with Alien 3. There is a, a new cut or a documentary or whatever. And the response I got back from this person was, it's not your movie. Don't worry about it. <laughs> now, again, that person's not yet the Fox anymore. Like they're long, long gone. I don't, I don't know what they're doing. But that to me was like, oh, so there's not really much interest in going into Alien 3 and kind of doing sort of like a, a home video autopsy on the film to figure out what went wrong, what's interesting, what could be salvaged. So after the, that first box set of the Alien Legacy came out, every once in a while I'd get a call from Sven Davison, who's also no longer at Fox, but he was he was like my point person at Fox. And he asked, would you want to put together a, a five-star collection of Alien, which was a, a limited series or whatever that Fox was doing, almost like their version of Criterion, like a very kind of high-end elite release. And I, and I kept asking, I said, well, we just did Alien pretty well. I think there was a good box that came out. Why don't we do Alien 3? Because that's the one where there's a whole bunch of treasure that has not been explored or unearthed. And the response is always like, well, no, probably not. And, and it always kind of like drifted away that conversation. And then like once a year, I get that call or once every six months or so until finally, like the, I think the third time Sven called me and he said, so would you want to do a five star Alien? And I said, well, how about a five star Alien 3? And that's when he said, how about you do all four? And that's when I went, whoa, <laughs> you know, be, be careful what you wish for. So what began as a set that was basically four or five star releases of those films, when we realized how much material not only was pre-existing and not only how much like there was in the way of deleted scenes and opportunities to do special edition cuts of these films, the same way the aliens had had done years before for Laserdisc, it just morphed into this bigger thing, which was the Alien Quadrilogy. A long answer to your question. I'm sorry, but that's kind of like that's the, the that's the train of thought. They're the best ones. Yeah. So you, you you literally just mentioned the um, the laser laser disc um, aliens, and you know for like what a little over ten years, aliens was the only film that that had an alternate edition. And then two thousand and three roll around at the end of the year, you know Halloween, I think it was. We get we get the in name only director's cut of Alien in the cinema, and then the quadrilogy comes out November December time, and we get alternate cuts of everything. I'm a, a little fuzzy on the chain of events that led to the decision to do, you know, alternate cuts of, of everything. Was it a case of you already had Alien, Alien 3 and Resurrection in the works for the quadrilogy and then Fox decided to give the Alien DC a theatrical release? Or was it a case of the DC was already in the works, there's two already there, let's do all four of them? 
No. We were working on the special edition versions of Alien, Alien 3, and Alien Resurrection simultaneous with the documentaries and all the bonus features. So we were doing that all at the same time. The plan from the very beginning was to create alternate cuts of the other three non-Aliens movies. That was from the get-go. And and that was kind of more out of like a sense of, well, we know there are a lot of deleted scenes from Alien, some of which had never even been released at that point, like not even previous releases. We assume there's deleted material from Resurrection because the script had other scenes that, that weren't in it. And we know for sure there's some lost bounty of stuff on Alien 3 somewhere. So basically we said, let's just go about and try to create a uniformity that sort of can be a nice match for Aliens, as a, you know, having the theatrical cut and the special edition cut. So all four began as special editions it was literally like on our all of our sort of like proposals and things that said alien special edition alien 3 special edition and so on and so forth it wasn't really until late in the game when fox decided they wanted to uh, release alien theatrically the new cut of alien around halloween as you said and that i guess someone there felt like it would be more exciting to call it a director's cut and that's when like a lot of conversations started happening. Like, well, it's not really a director's cut. I mean, yes, the director is cutting the movie, but it's not the traditional definition of the word of the term director's cut. And that's why the booklet and the quadrilogy does a lot of tiptoeing and tap dancing around minds to try to explain, you know, that that was the case. So that was basically just, I think, a, a way for them to drive interest in the upcoming quadrilogy box set. So Alien comes out for Halloween. It's a great, scary movie. People get to go see it in the theater again. Plus, they see a new version, which now is called the director's cut. And then that gets them excited in time for the holidays where they get to buy the, the new box set. So from a marketing standpoint, it makes total sense. I totally get it. From uh, an alien nerd purist standpoint, it's like it's a little wordy in terms of like, <laughs> they, you know, it's a little tricky, but it's fine. I mean, so long as I, I was always of the mindset so long as the director's preferred cut was available, you call it whatever you want. And, and that'll get us eventually to Alien 3 in terms of calling the Blu-ray version the assembly cut, which was also kind of done without my input. And I really kind of wish we had had that conversation before that term got locked into like menus and packaging and things like that, because an assembly is when you cut together all of the footage you shot in a really rough kind of like just it's, it's, like, it's like a basically just laying out the entire film so you know what you've shot. You lay it out in narrative order, but it's a string out of everything. Thing, so that you know the filmmaker knows what they've shot they know what they might be missing what they might need to improve and reshoot just so they know what they've got and, and so many times when you see interviews with people editors directors and they say oh the first cut was four hours long they're talking about the assembly okay that's not that's not really a version of the film you want to watch and enjoy now if you're like an uber nerd and you just want to see all the raw footage in narrative form basically roughly cut together into something approximating the movie sure but these four-hour cuts you hear about, those are most likely assemblies that are not meant to be seen by anyone except for the filmmakers. And then it's the work print, isn't it? Well, so work print comes from when people used to cut on film. So basically, it was a print that you would cut, like physically cut and tape and you know glue and all these things where it was physical. So a lot of times when you screened it at a test screening, it was a film print that was cobbled together. I mean, I'm talking like early days. It, it got more technologically refi refined as time went on. But the work print idea comes from the fact that you get physical film, photochemical film from the lab. And as an editor, you start cutting that thing up physically and you start taping it together physically. You know, it's not like on a nonlinear, beautiful editing system where you can just make a million versions of the film when you're an editor and you make a cut you realize i am cutting this thing and if i have to fix this if i cut it if i chop it up so hard that i have to go request a new print of this from the lab i know i'm really like either doing something wrong or the director is really being super indecisive about stuff I edited on film. I was in film school. And I always remember when you had like the movieola that you were cutting on or, or the, the Steenbeck stand-ups, I believe they were called. You'd hit the break to stop what you're doing. You'd watch it and go 
could go through and then you hit the break, you take a grease pencil and you'd mark it. And then if you're happy with that mark, then you would maybe cut it and then you'd maybe tape it to another piece of film. And that's how you'd cobble together the movie. So work prints kind of come from that mindset. And, th- and it's really just a term that kind of continued on with the gray area between film and then digital. Uh-huh. Things like the Blade Runner work print, that was known as the work print because the cut, what you're seeing, was kind of like born from all the work that Terry Rawlings had done in terms of actually physically cutting film. So again, these are terms that are kind of used loosely sometimes. They're not always 100% accurate, but at least you know what you're talking about when you say, oh, the work print of this or the assembly cut of that or whatever. It's like, it's just the name, but don't take it seriously as a definition. Oh, I mean, sometimes you do, but sometimes you don't. Is the assembly cut in the Region 1 version of the anthology? Because in in mine, it's still the um, 2003 special edition, is what it's called. In your Blu-ray? Yeah, in, in the menu. It shouldn't be. Well, I don't know. That's the thing is like when you get into international skews of your 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 disc configurations, some I mean, that goes way beyond me. Like in the old days, I'd see everything, but increasingly it just became a thing they just kind of shipped off and you just hope for the best. So I, I don't know that. But I mean if you if you if you watch the Blu-ray and if the Alien 3 assembly cut or special edition or whatever it's called has all the new audio in those rough spots. Yeah, yeah, it does. Okay, so that's then that's the de facto assembly cut. So yeah. In the Going back to the regional thing, in the quadrilogy, if you remember in Aliens, I think in the menu you gave the aliens a new name. Mm-hmm. That didn't make it into our version either. That's that's only region one and region four, I think. Yeah. So it makes things confusing for me when they're telling me something's there and I'm looking, I can't find I can't find it. Where is it? <laughs> yeah. But yeah. Well, you know, there's different levels of canon to worry about. And I and I always feel like the only canon you have to worry about is what what is actually in a particular film. Yeah. And sometimes that canon changes from film to sequel to sequel. So that's a whole different ballgame. But I feel like don't rely on menus or special features or whatever as your canon. I mean, it's it's fun to reference and it's fun to just note as a little, you know, little asterisk next to it as something to say, oh, that's kind of fun. But I got into so much trouble. Not really, but I got I got a lot of there's a lot of talk about this Blu-ray kind of Easter egg menu thing I wrote for Prometheus. Yeah, which read it, it it ties. It's sort of not legally, but kind of like (laughs) playfully entangles the worlds of Alien and Blade Runner together. And man, some people take that as gospel. I'm like, it's just a it's just a Blu-ray menu thing. Don't take it too seriously. Just out of curiosity, were there ever any other names you suggested for the director's cut or the assembly cut? Or was that always just a decision for marketing? And it was like, we're going with this. I just thought it would be called special edition the same way it was previously. I think someone rightly so felt like because of the work we put into the audio, especially bringing back Sigourney Weaver and Lance Henriksen and Charles Dance, I mean, that's that was, you know, a lot of work that maybe it'd be better to give it a different designation. I was not privy to that conversation because I was elsewhere working on other parts of the project. And I, I don't even I don't even remember exactly because I remember one phone call I had where I was questioning is like, are you sure you want to call it assembly cut? Because it's not really assembly cut. It's the same cut as before. It's just better audio. And at that point, it had already been locked in in terms of menus and packaging because the thing you have to understand is like a lot of decisions are made very early on. And that's why a lot of studio people don't like when you come up with something new or some change or some revel- revelation like late in the game, because that can derail so much of the work they've already done in terms of menus and packaging and other things they have to generate at the studio. So somehow assembly cut got through the pipeline far enough that it was too late to change. So it's not so much that it was a mistake. It was just that so many pieces, there's so many moving pieces on these projects that something like that, I'm surprised doesn't happen more often, but that's just one thing I wish we could have maybe locked in earlier versus assuming that that was something to call it. But again, it wasn't my call and who knows why it got to that late in the game. 
Fair enough. Yeah. And both Scott and Cameron supervised the alternate edition of their films, and you'd had some contact with Jeune for what you were doing on Resurrection. However, Alien 3 continues to be a point of contention for David Fincher, but you reached out to him and very nearly spoke to him twice. I know you've previously told these stories, but for the sake of completeness on this episode, could you tell us about the efforts you went through to get Fincher involved on the assembly cut? Well, first, I believe it was Sven at Fox who reached out to his office. And what Sven told me was the the, the phrase that came back was, it's not my movie, do whatever you want with it, or something like that. <laughs> so that's where we started. And then as we got deeper and deeper into it, and we started discovering more and more things, and then we found this kind of lost cut of the film, I wrote a letter to him, basically explained what we're doing and why I was so passionate about it. And wouldn't it be great if you came back in and participated and you could change the film however you wanted? Because basically Fox, I don't know if they would have followed through on this entirely, but I I, I hope they would have, which was they, you know, Sven told me, like, basically anything Fincher wants to do, they were happy to help him do. They're happy to allow him to do it. And I think the thought back from him was, again, I don't remember if he actually said this or this is just something that came up conversationally with other people. But the idea was, well, why didn't you just let him do that the first time when he made the movie? <laughs> and, and I think another phrase that came out of it was the only way to make a director's cut of Alien 3 is to burn the negative of the current film and let Fincher go back and start over and completely create a whole new film. So that's the type of mindset we were working with in terms of trying to reach out to Fincher, realizing the resistance that was going to be there. And plus, we, you don't want to like antagonize the guy because he obviously had a terrible experience on it, famously. And at some point, you have to stop bothering him. But we kept trying. And then around that same time, I was producing a special edition DVD of the movie One Hour Photo, which was directed by Mark Romanek. And Mark is a friend of Fincher's and works with him. They had office space together, I think, for a while. And I asked, Mark, would you ask Fincher, I t tell him about what we're doing and ask him if he would at least maybe just talk to me or something. And he said, you try. And then, I don't know, a couple of weeks later, I come back to the office after lunch and there's a voicemail and it's David Fincher on the voicemail. And it literally sounded pretty much like this. It was, uh, Charles, this is David Fincher. I hear you want to talk to me about Alien 3. And then it just cut out. <laughs> that was it. That was the, the entirety of the thing. And you could tell, like, he was so pained to even mention the title Alien 3. So I, I called back. I, call, I called his assistant. We never reconnected. So that was one time. And then the second time was I went out for lunch at this place called uh, Paquito Moss in, um, in the kind of like the Studio City area near where our offices were. And Fincher was there having lunch. But he was there with like two or three other people. And they looked like they were having an intense conversation. So for me to just kind of waltz up and say, hey, I'm working on Alien 3, I don't think that would have gone over very well. I, again, I tried to give him some room and I went outside and I called the guys back at the office. I said, Fincher's here. And should I go talk to him? They're like, yes, go talk to him. And by the time I, I went back in, he was already gone. So <laughs> I, was, I feel like that was just like the universe telling me, leave the guy alone. So we did. But again, we, we were always trying and we would occasionally have very minimal back channel communications, his office, but again, minimal and, and nothing that was, I think, super impactful on, on the cut. It was just more of like letting them know what we're doing and just polite back channel conversations. Nothing worth studying further than that. I mean, I, people love to read into this and think, oh man, it was so close. Adventure's doing this. It's like, it, it wasn't close at all. It was just, we tried, he was not interested. We kept trying a little bit, but at some point it was just like, okay, he's, he's just going to get annoyed if we keep trying to push him on this. And when it became apparent that Fincher wasn't going to be involved with the cut, how did you decide what direction to take with the assembly cut? Had you already come across any editing documentation and line scripts, or was that later in the process? We we looked through everything that Fox had in their archive, in their vaults. And, um, you know, a line script would be helpful, notes would be helpful, but ultimately we found the holy grail, which was we found an actual cut. Like we found the actual earliest, longest, most different cut of the film that Fox had that included all the stuff on the surface of the Clemens all the stuff with the ox, 
all the stuff with with Gollick. I mean, all of that we found in this cut. So it was sort of like, this is it. Why, you know, why look further in terms of the, the creative intent when you actually have the product of that creative intent, which was an early version of the film that Fincher and Terry Rollins had generated, you know, regardless of whatever, whatever interference they had from the studio or producers or whatever, like this was something they produced. So we looked at it and we determined, OK, so this is viable in terms of it's a full story. You know, there's no big missing pieces. It makes sense. It's really cool. There's a lot of great stuff fans haven't seen before. Now we have to go about trying to find the negative for all of the new bits. And sometimes the negative was not found, but we found alternates that were close enough. So if you were to look at one cut versus the final cut of it, you probably couldn't tell unless you're super nitpicky that there were any minor differences. Because again, it was like, it was so minuscule. So we started basically conforming our new version to that cut that we found. And the only big creative decisions that we had to make on our own without Fincher's involvement was visual effects, the, the remaining visual effects that had to be completed for this all to work. And that's where we talked a little bit with Terry Rollins. We talked a little bit with uh, Richard Edlund and Richard Edlund had this binder that had some storyboards in it and some notes, like all visual effects notes, not editorial notes. And how that was helpful was to, you know, see what the shot was, what the frame was they had in mind for these unfinished visual effects shots. Now, some were in process. They were already being worked on. Some were just elements that they had captured, but they hadn't composited together. And others were completely like had to be created from whole cloth. But again, because we had storyboards and because we had reference, it, it was I'm not saying it was easy, but it was we had a clearer path forward in terms of finishing what had already been in progress back in 1991 or whenever it was they generated this cut. I'm wondering if it's not worth asking the next two you now. That's what I mentioned to you before. It's like a lot of these questions about how, how you came up with this cut. It wasn't us sitting around being creative and thinking, oh, this is going to be my dream fan edit of the movie. It's, it wasn't that at all. It's like my point with all this was let's try to find a, a historical document or artifact or something that basically showed us what they were working on. What was this cut going to be at this earlier stage of the film, of the post-production process? It wasn't us thinking, oh, we have all the dailies of the film. Let's kind of cut this together any way we want. I'm always against that. I always feel like it should always originate with the filmmakers and if we have to polish and finish up a few things to get it there that's that's okay just so long as it comes from the same source yeah. which in this case the filmmakers so we did not go off of like we didn't have to interpret handwritten notes we didn't have to interpret much of anything it was mostly just visual effect shots and some music and that was kind of it really in terms of just finishing something that had been like i feel like in terms of the picture edit probably like 80 or 90 percent uh where the final version of the assembly cut ended up so it was really almost already there it was just conforming to that so how how early on in 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 the process did you come across this unknown cut then there, there weren't like any points where you were working off say the, the work print you know the vhs work print was, was it a, a, an early find that just made the the road to restoration really easy or was there any sort of period where it was you having to maybe think about doing this off your own creative um, energies so just imagine you start the job with the studio and they start asking you, what do you, what do you need? And you start going through inventory lists. And we had multiple people working on this. Basically, Fox sends over just boxes and boxes and boxes of everything they've got. So you have to open the box and see what's the inventory for each box. And then you have to like look at it all. So that was a process. And I don't remember exactly how early on it was since we when we first started, but it was probably a few weeks at least, I'm going to assume. It's been, you know, it's been what, 17 years <laughs> since we did this. So it's <laughs> yeah. been a while. But, you know, in one of those boxes was this cut, this this lost cut of the film, which we, we had not known about only because of, you know, as you point out, the, the work print bootleg tape that had been going around was different. And we weren't getting any kind of guidance from Fincher, understandably. 
Terry Rawlings was just very supportive and just like basically tried to help us. But again, he's worked on so many films and so much time had passed. So basically just kind of like a spiritual guidance more than anything else. So he, he couldn't say, oh, in box 35, that's where the lost cut is. You know, it's like, that's not what happened. So yeah, but once that cut was found, then it then it was a clearer path. It wasn't totally clear, but it was a clearer path uh, forward to finishing. So let's fast forward a little bit to 2010 and the Alien Anthology is released on Blu-ray. Yet again, we're blown away by the new transfers and the swanky new menus. In Alien 3's menu, you offer an explanation for that ever bothersome mysterious alien egg. Was there ever any temptation to try and fix that in the assembly cut, especially given that the egg itself seemed to have been filmed during the L.A. reshoots? How do you headcanon the egg? I don't think it's possible to actually real canon the egg, so you, you can only headcanon the egg. <laughs> so I think that, no, there was never, again, to repeat myself, there was never, ever an instance of let's fan edit this gloss cut into something that makes sense for fans or us or whatever. So no, there was no temptation at all to try to manipulate an existing cut of the film to address this notorious continuity issue that fans have been you know, up in arms about for so many years. <laughs> we thought it'd be kind of fun. Again, me doing the fun little nerdy thing, you know, for menus and whatever was to try to address this. So I spoke with Raleigh Stewart, who designed those beautiful menus. And I and I mentioned to him, I said, you know, there is this one thing in Alien 3, since you're doing these sort of like schematic breakdowns of Alien and Aliens, you know, like you see Sulaco, you see, you know, Stroma, whatever, you see all these things that are very schematic driven and surveillance video kind of driven. I said, why not? Let's take a stab at the egg for Alien 3. And I, and I suggested him, you know, use some clips from Aliens of the Queen with the egg sac and detaching and then the egg sac you know the, being deposited the what was it called the avapositor is that what it's yeah. called the uh, mm-hmm. the egg yeah. thing so do that and he did he did a, i thought a fantastic job and i love the fact that of all four menu sets that's the only one that really breaks menu to tell a story where it's sort of like each one is kind of color theme like alien is kind of green alien is kind of blue resurrection is kind of brown if i recall but alien 3 is kind of amber or golden or whatever but then it goes like all these like kind of warning chevrons and alerts come up and it's like oh there's like an alien presence it really draws your attention to the menu so I thought that was a lot of fun. But yeah, we talked about it. There's there's no way to explain how that egg got on the Sulaco or even into the EEV. So that's when you kind of have to start asking yourself, like, is there is there a middle ground? Is there sort of like, can you meet the fans halfway and give them a little something that makes it kind of fun, even though it doesn't get all the way there to being a real answer? I also believe Alien 3, you know, some people like to pretend it's a hypersleep nightmare of Ripley's that didn't actually happen. I think it actually happened in the canon of the story. It's just that it is a night, a more nightmarish film than the other two. I think all of them are nightmares, frankly. They're they're all the stuff of dreams. There's kind of a dream logic sometimes to the, how it all works. But when you come off of a real nuts and bolts film like Aliens, which is like really, it's really easy to to kind of sink your teeth into Aliens because there isn't much to interpret beyond the drama and the character, the stakes of the characters are facing and the mission. It's like, it's very like black and white in terms of what you need to understand in Aliens, whereas Alien 3 is like almost more like a David Lynch film in a way. It's kind of like, it's really kind of like, there's a lot of different things to interpret. It is like a nightmare. It has a dream logic to it. And I think if you try to apply the Aliens black and white sensibility to the Alien 3 dream logic it, it, those two are always going to clash so there's really no way to mesh those two together and all and also obviously the real answer is somewhere in the making of alien 3 someone just decided it doesn't matter let's not, let's not even explain it we'll do it so fast we'll just get beyond it and no one will care and of course everyone cared everyone. i mean even i was like wow that was that was where that egg come from but yeah I like to just go off the hidden sound effect at the end of Aliens. Yeah, the little the skittering, the face yeah. I group skittering. Yeah, it was no egg. I mean, I don't think yeah. the egg was even in the. I don't think it was in the VHS. That edit. I don't think, no, I don't think it was either. Mm. 
And you know what? Speaking of the nightmare stuff, Helene always seems to cut the actual nightmares. You know, there's um, when she's going on about having a terrible dream in, in hypersleep in Alien 3, there was like two nightmare sequences originally scripted where she's the, <laughs> the alien bends her over a cryo tube and with the implied rape mm-hmm. physically did that. And um, there, I think there was one in Aliens that got cut at the very start uh, in the scripting stage. You know, there was nightmares of her running through the Nostromo. They don't mm-hmm. like to actually have them in the films for some reason. Well, a- Aliens famously had a nightmare with her in, in the hospital bed. Okay, fair point. Yeah, shut me mouth. <laughs> <laughs> so Studio ADI had originally built a third scale, I believe, rod puppet for the sequence in which the Bambi Burster walked away from the dead ox. But for the assembly cut, Encore Hollywood did some digital work and it was replaced by a CGI creature. Could you tell us a little bit about the decisions behind that and your experience working with Encore? Well, we worked with a few different effects houses across all the, the films that we worked on. But with Alien 3, it had kind of like, I think there were like three houses we were working with. And basically, you try to let the experts do their job. And you basically, you know, you only kind of make notes of things like that's not going to cut or that's not going to match something else that we're doing somewhere else. When it came to the methodology of the shot, we saw the the reference footage, which is in like Wreckage and Rage and elsewhere on the disc, I think, of them kind of puppeteering the, the baby burster, the dog burster or the Bambi burster, whichever burster we're talking about. And it just seemed like at the time, like doing a CG version would have just it was it was easier. It was more, quote unquote, realistic. I mean, it, it mean, you could give it more of a character versus just painting out rods. I'm not sure if the footage we had again, it was so long ago, but I'm not sure if the footage we had of the rod puppet was usable or if there was negative for it or what there might have been. But I just think the collective decision was that it looks better just doing it as a CG character because we we had the reference of the puppet. We had the reference of the, the dog and the suit right the whippet we had we had that as like lighting reference and atmosphere and all that so with all that all that reference why not just create a cg character also keep in mind we did use the real puppet from the film and we just you know the the team at encore they just kind of cut them out paste them in the new background of the avatar so there's no big mystery to that it was just it just seemed like the, the better way to go i mean if people have had a problem with that cg special edition version of the burster i haven't heard it i'm sure there's people out there who do but i i haven't heard it in the same way that i've heard problems with people having with the original rod puppet effect shots and it always drives me insane when people on message boards and things say (laughs) oh man i hate alien 3 those cg effects are terrible i'm like there is literally one second of cg effects in the original cut of alien 3 and that's just the head cracking once the water the steam hits or whatever it's like it's and it's one second and everyone's like oh all those rod puppet shots those are cgs like they're not cg you know, Alien 3 landed at a very interesting time in visual effects technology, and you've got people like Richard Edlund and, and Fincher and other people that are trying to push the envelope. You know, they're trying to, like, do new, bold things and things that people haven't seen before. And the alien needs to move in a different way because it's, it comes from, you know, the theatrical cut. It comes from a dog, and Fincher was calling it, like, a puma. It's supposed to move really fast or whatever. So it was, a, it was a different beast and a different kind of interesting time between optical and digital effects, and that's just kind of where it landed in terms of the rod puppet shots. And so in 2003, we had the ability to look back and say, okay, let's maybe avoid the rod puppets for the new footage. Again, we didn't want to touch anything that had been previously released, but that was kind of like sacred ground. As much as you may not like it, it was still considered off limits, I think, for what we were doing. Be happy with how the CG guy turned out, personally? Yeah, I am. I haven't watched it in a while, so maybe if I went back and watched it today, I'd say, oof. You know, but I, oh. I doubt it. I think I remember being pretty pleased with it, and um, and it does the job. You know, my whole thing about visual effects fixing and revisionism and whatever is so long as it doesn't take you out of the movie, it keeps you immersed in the movie, then that's a good thing. 
That was a big thing on Blade Runner, which was all of these visual effects fixes and changes and picture changes we were going to do. My whole thing was, let's not do the Star Wars special edition approach, which was to really show it off and you know create exciting new things for people to like uh, deconstruct as they're watching it. It was more about like, let's keep it almost invisible so you don't notice it and you stay immersed in the story and the characters. So that's kind of like always my approach. It's not always my say, but I when I do have a say or if I do at least have the ear of somebody, I'll say, let's just try to keep people in the story and the characters and not show off new technology or new amazing ideas because they're cool. Do it because it serves story and character. I was just curious, do you know if the CG crack sequence, that was just the cracks themselves, right? Not the the head itself was still practical in that shot. I think the head was CG. I'm sure that I was I think it might have been all CG, yeah. yeah. It's been, again, it's been a while since I revisited or I read mm. effects on that, but I, I feel like the whole thing was, like the, the head and the cracks were all CG. Because yeah. otherwise you have to track those cracks onto a practical head, and that seems like that'd be even harder yeah. to yeah. do. And it was just a really quick shot, too. So It's like one second. It really is like that fast. So again, I don't know why. It's a shame that that, that CG as a technique is, is so uh, despised on Alien 3 when it really was only in that one shot in the theatrical cut. Yeah, and, and the little flecks of debris, but they're so barely noticeable anyway. Um, Adam, if if you get chance, read Alien: The Special Effects book. It's like a um, it's all the various Cineffects cine articles of Alien, Aliens, and Alien Three as one big re-release. They talk about it in there. It's really fascinating that one. Yeah, you'll have to point me in the right direction for that one. Yeah, I will do. Uh, anybody out there, that's that's a really good book for um stuff there was stuff in there about alien 3 that i'd, I'd forgot and it was really interesting to pick up again and but as an as an extension of the of the previous question you know of, of talking about the ox burster sequence i just wanted to ask you a little bit about actually putting it together because while it was famously known for its omission it was also a sequence that fincher really wasn't pleased with so was it difficult to you know make that scene work to your satisfaction in the edit well, again, it was it was uh, basically what we had to work with in terms of like the, that cut that we found. So it's like it was basically conforming to that. The visual effects part of it, which is basically the the guy, you know, the, the burster kind of getting up and walking around. I mean, that was, again, kind of copying what was already there just in rough form or non-existent form. It, was, it might have been just a background plate. I don't remember. Again, it was so long. But look, I think the bigger problem with that scene is the notion that an alien would be birthed from a dead animal. And an animal that's been dead for so long yeah. at that particular moment. But we know there's a lot of stuff we don't understand about the alien. How does the alien transmit memories from real Ripley to clone Ripley in resurrection? It's like there's a, there's a number of things we could question about the alien because it's changed over time, you know, going from the, coco- the cocoon scene in Alien 1, the queen and aliens and so on and so forth. It's like it's, it's always been kind of changing and morphing into different things based on filmmakers needs, the stories needs, like any any number of things that probably don't have anything to do with a true scientific understanding of what the alien actually is. So that's my that's my only issue with that scene i think it's pretty cool i I hate seeing a dog you know die like i think that was really painful to see but of course that's the part that's the the quote-unquote beauty of alien 3 it's like it's a tough film and everyone suffers in alien 3 again it's like i don't i don't think the the oxburster scene is bad it's just probably just not as visceral and painful to watch as the dog burster like that's far more painful I would say personally, the ox was a little bit more ominous, though, which is why I like it. I mean, it really affected the tone of that sequence. There was more of a juxtaposition between that funeral and then this dog violently bursting, as opposed to just seeing the ox there starting to shake. And and I really prefer that version. Yeah, it's almost like it's rising from the dead in a way. And that's that is creepy. But again, I don't know if that was intended or not. Uh, I don't know why. I guess, again, I was not privy to the script development on this, but maybe when they were um, writing the scene of the prisoners using the ox to drag you know the ev and all the all the stuff up on the beach that maybe they felt like we need an animal it's not a human so let's use the ox versus let's give a dog or put a dog into the mix so 
Again, I think it's just, I think the dog is more powerful, but the ox, as you say, is kind of more weird and strange and mysterious. You can go either way, I guess. I, I prefer the ox just because I think it leads to the, what I think what we'll probably end up talking about a bit is the, the, the super face hugger, the queen face hugger. It just leads to that in a, in a very strange way. Like how did the, not only the ox slash dog and Ripley get impregnated off of one face hugger that, that we see, right? I mean, there's there are ways to cut it where it looks like there's two face huggers because you see the one that's kind of like crawling back. But I feel like that's the same face hugger, but that's because it's a super face hugger, but they don't establish in the theatrical cut that it's a super face hugger. So again, a bit of a mess and kind of editorially sloppy, but that's, that's a byproduct of the way this film was put together. Yeah. Personally, I'm, I'm the dog burster guy. I just, I, know, I, th- I think it has a bit more impact with it being a live creature myself, but that's just me. Me too. No, it's painful to watch, especially because I think most people love dogs. So it's like, I feel like that is really, really painful to watch. I, I love how brutal the film is. That's, that's one of the things I really like about it, actually. That's one of the things I really like about The End of Covenant as well. You know how depressing the end of that is. I've just got a thing for the harsh world of Alien. A bit like, like with the Bambi burst of them, I assume much of the new scenes needed work to fit into a completely visually coherent edit of Alien. Did you have much work to do on the restoration? I think you even mentioned things in the past, like having to insert live, live action water into footage and things like that. There were, like I said, there were elements that existed, like green screen elements and things. Like when Ripley sacrificed herself at the end, we had an alternate non-burst version of that, which was Sigourney Weaver. Or maybe it was Sigourney Weaver, but it was also a, like a puppet, I think, or some kind of figure in front of a green screen that we had. I could be wrong about that. But again, it's been 17 years. I apologize. In terms of like the water and things like that, I mean, I remember that was just that was a, just a, a new element that was just added. I don't think it was that big of a deal, to, to be honest. It was... It was interesting because I remember the perspective was unusual because it was looking down on the EEV and the beach and it had kind of an interesting angle on the water. We tried, trying to find the water to match that angle digitally, I think was maybe like, you know, an extra conversation to have about that to make it match. But I don't think it was any kind of big headache. Um, as I recall, I could be wrong. So not generally too much then? In terms of like new elements being shot yeah. and things like that? Well, just in general work, I mean, did, did like the, the, the color stuff and things like that was... You mean like the color grading? Like yeah, that, yeah, that? yeah. Again, it was sort of like that in that case with the color, it was matching the theatrical cut as much as possible. And even if it was a scene that wasn't in the theatrical cut, there's still enough reference for the world to kind of get a sense of what that would look like. So that wasn't, again, not a lot of creative interpretation to be done, just more of like, let's just try to have it line up and match and fit what we know to be gospel or canon. Uh-huh. In terms of the visuals, in terms of like live action elements, I don't remember there being a ton. There was like a lot of digital matte paintings. I remember having some conversations with Rocco Joffrey and, and his team about the chains hanging in the in the opening scene or when Clemens is walking in terms of like getting the timing of it right. But, you know, basically what happened is these different effects houses kind of took their piece of it, went off and did what they did. And because keep in mind, at the same time, not only are we doing all four movies in terms of like the bonus features, the documentaries, the interviews, traveling around the world, all that stuff, hours and hours of content, we are also, me and my team are like supervising the three new special edition cuts. So it wasn't like I or someone was like over these guys' shoulder all the time, like watching what they were doing. We would have a creative discussion. They would go off. They would then they would send us back roughs of what they were doing. And, you know, there'd be some further conversation. And then maybe as we start to integrate these new shots into the cut, some further conversation in terms of making it just line up just right. Or this could be a little bit better. But it wasn't like, um, <laughs> you know, I was out there, you know, 24 seven with everybody doing their thing. It's like there's, there's a lot of people who worked on the uh, quadrilogy and then later the anthology set who did just amazing work on their own. My whole thing was just kind of oversight and kind of bringing it all together at the end with, again, with all of these amazing teams of people. Okay. 
I remember before the quadrilogy, Alien 3 was a source of some fascinating alternate things that the alien could do. The, I think, unfilmed scene where the queen crawls out of drowning Newt and, the, as you mentioned, the super face hugger. We'd seen pictures of it and known about it, but when the assembly cut was released, you saw it once in, in a long shot. What was the rationality behind it being included in this way? Was there just no other good footage of it? We saw footage from a medium shot during uh, Wreckage and Rage. So once again, that was the cut. That was the shot, the wider shot. That's what was in the cut we found. So again, I could have done a fan edit decision and say, oh, let's go to the medium shot so you can see it better. But that was not actually in the cut. So at some point, either Finch, Fincher or Terry Rawlings or some someone in that core creative team said, let's go with that wider shot of the super face hugger. Maybe because it's more mysterious, you kind of have to lean forward to see what it is. I don't know. But that's what was in the cut we were conforming to. The shot that's in Wreckage and Rage is sort of like a way of having your cake and eating it too. So now you can see that shot. Mm. And if you're desperate to see how that shot plays, you can cut it yourself into the movie. <laughs> edits but that's why basically any any time you would ask me why did you do this shot versus that shot in the assembly cut or the special edition it's because that's what was in the cut that we found like 99% of the time that'll be my answer that was that's what was in the cut we found we were conforming to that gotcha and aside from anything we've already talked about were there any other scenes that were dropped that you missed from the finished cut of the assembly cut I know there's a few other scenes that were in that VHS work print bootleg tape, but for whatever reason, whether we ran out of time or money, those, those just didn't make it to the finish line. And again, they wouldn't have gone in any way because they weren't in that cut that we found. But as a separate deleted scenes, maybe one day that can be revisited. I, I have no idea. It's just that was not available to us at the time to do. So no, there's nothing. I, I can't think of anything that was shot that I felt was really missing in the special edition slash assembly cut version. Um, I think that's that's it. We did on Alien, on the first film, we did a mega cut that included everything and showed it to Ridley. And he felt it was too long. It was too slow. It was boring or whatever. And I said, well, yeah, that's why the theatrical cut you released in 79 is the perfect <laughs> cut of the film. That stuff doesn't work. You cut it out for a reason. This now is sort of like looking back, like, you know, as a retrospective experience for fans to see, see all that material because they love the extra material, but also see that it doesn't work as well as the theatrical cut. And that I think it applies to pretty much any time you go into a film to either do a new cut or to show deleted scenes. Like you have to understand those things were cut out for a reason. You might not always agree with that reason, but there is a reason. Someone thought to, to say, OK, that's not working. I have to cut it out. There was something I was personally curious about after watching Wreckage and Rage recently, and that was, I believe, and maybe you can shed some light on if this is correct or not, this was part of the scene where Ripley ends up, she discovers she has the chest burster and she ends up going to, to look for where the alien is hiding. And when we eventually see it, she stabs the pipe, and then it just kind of comes down and it cuts away to the next scene of her and Dylan. But I believe it was the Studio ADI segment where you see the alien just kind of standing above her, I think. Was that part of that scene? Like, did that scene initially go on beyond just the cutaway to the, the scene with her and Dylan talking? I don't remember seeing, again, I might have seen it. It's been so long. I don't remember seeing that particular shot. Again, not in the lost cut, not in the theatrical. So therefore, it's, it, I don't know where I would have found a home other than maybe in bonus footage somewhere. But um, I don't remember that being um, something that we ever discussed putting in anywhere, to be honest. I just don't, I don't remember if we saw that or not. Gotcha. It was such a cool shot of just the alien looming above. I was curious where that fit in. And just talking generally about footage that you found but didn't put in because you were conforming to, you know, that that long lost cut. Did did you ever come across anything else of of the super hugger? Was it literally only the abattoir scene? Yeah, there was there was never a, the whole bit about it crawling out of nudes or whatever, you know, all that stuff. No, there was none of that. It was the abattoir and that was it. 
That's a shame. Because, I mean, you know, going back to the mess that is some of the, uh, you know, some of the editing, you know, it's, it's a normal face hugger it shows and then it doesn't even look like the super face hugger. And so it's like, well, what's the point at this point? Well, I mean, I, I love the super face hugger uh, as a design. I think it's beautiful and, and they did a great job on it, Tom and Alec. But I feel like if you show that in the film and you have fans who are so continuity obsessed, then they're gonna say, wait, what is that? What is that face hugger? And then you have to stop the movie to explain, like show Ripley, like, oh, I've never seen this one before. This is something different. That takes time up to explain. And if you don't explain it, then they're like, oh, they got the design wrong, they blew it. So I, I, don't, I don't know how you win that particular battle. But, <laughs> That's yeah. fair, yeah. So when the anthology set came out, you know, and, and it came around, it gave you a chance to revisit the assembly cut and fix some of the audio issues in the original quadrilogy release. You've already mentioned, you know, it was Sigourney, it was Charles Dance, it was it was Lance Hendrickson. Can you tell us a little bit about your experience with those ADR fixes and, and what it was like directing those guys in the sessions? Well, you know, the great thing about Sven Davison, who used to be at Fox, was you could just sort of say, hey, wouldn't it be cool if we did this? And quite often he would at least look into it and and also sometimes actually get it done. And this was one of those cases where we, we talked about the Alien 3 special edition DVD version that came out, but it had those unfortunate bits where the it was all production audio. So you'd hear like the fans on the set. You, it just the, the audio was not particularly good. And it was, again, distracting from staying in the story and the characters. So once Sven looked into it and he, and he and he got permission from Fox to reach out to Sigourney's people and Charles Dance's people and Lance Anderson's people and then it be, became a kind of a sort of a process of scheduling and getting them involved and, and all that so all three of them were in different cities when I was in LA we had a session with Lance and that was super easy and straightforward and we did that on the Fox lot I mean Lance was great very you know really nice guy and very you know eager to fix this to to get this polished and done right Charles Dance was in London, and I can't remember where I was, because around the same time, I was directing my first feature, Crave, in Detroit. So I can't remember if I spoke with Charles via phone from Detroit, but it was around the same time. And he was like such a professional and like knocked it out. Like, And he did two takes for himself, which were fine. And then I kind of gave him one little note, which I could tell he was not like, he's like, who is this guy I'm talking to on the phone? <laughs> you could tell like, you know, why am I listening to this chucklehead? So he did two more. And I said, thank you very much. That's great. I appreciate it. And then um, and then Sigourney's was the best because she was in New York. I was in Detroit working on my film. And we talked for a long time. I mean, beyond just doing her bits. I think the actual record time with her was like, it felt like it was maybe 15 or 20 minutes. But we were on the phone for quite some time talking about the new box set and things that she would maybe like to contribute. Because I think there was there was talk for a while where she wanted to do her own commentary on, on all the films. And she asked me about my movie. And, and it, was, it was just a really fun conversation that I, I had with her. So that was... That was me in Detroit, Sigourney in, in, in um, New York, and then the team in L.A. recording. So it was like this three-city patch that happened. <laughs> so, but, but it made all the difference in the world because that and then plus all the other audio work to smooth out those scenes and kind of like fix some gaps. Because another shot that bugged me from the DVD version was when Gallic lures trying to remember if I got this right, lures the alien into the, uh, no, it's not, who, who is one of the, one of the prisoners, I forget, lures uh, the alien. Junior, you, you, you're on about the death screens, aren't you? Yeah, the, yeah lures into the toxic waste dump and you hear this, you're supposed to hear the screams because they're all reacting to it. But in the DVD version of the special edition cut, we had nothing there. They were just like listening. Whereas in the on the Blu-ray, they added some like scratching. And so all of that, that final like level of polish was much needed and I think much appreciated in the final go on this. Yeah. I think in the work print, they actually ripped something from Aliens for the sound effect for that bit, if I remember rightly. I don't. <laughs> <laughs> and I know it was a smaller uh, role, supporting character, but the scientist, did you re-record any of, of his audio as well when he shows up with Bishop 2? No, we didn't oh. have to do anything with that. Yeah. Oh. 
I could have sworn that that also had the um, I have to go back and watch the DVD release, but I could have sworn that one also had a lot of the background production noise and it seemed like it well, was cleaned up. Parts of it did. And there might have been ways to clean it up without having to bring back an actor to do the voice or someone else to do the voice. But he was obviously key with those three actors like they're, you know, they're famous people. People know their voices. So yep. you could you could just drop some random voice actor in over a background bit player. So um, I'm not 100 percent sure if that was even an issue we had, but uh, you can't tell now. Like that's that's the good thing. It might veer a little too close on the revisionism kind of side, but was ever any temptation to sort of like get Paul McGann in to do like a consistent accent for his bits? <laughs> I remember talking about Paul McGann in terms of like the documentary and trying to get him involved with somehow, but it just, it was minimal, obviously, mm-hmm. um, the, the little piece we did get. So, and, and, and once again, I, I have to keep stressing, we were working on four movies at the same time. So it's like, you have to, I hate to say this, but you only have so much bandwidth and you have to go to the ones where the directors are involved and the directors are interested. And basically because I was an Alien 3 like morbidly curious fan boy i was fighting for alien 3 but at some point you have to listen to ridley scott or james cameron or even john pierre Jeanne, like what they want or what they don't want or whatever so alien 3 got i thought an incredible five-star treatment even though we didn't have five-star support from everybody involved on the original film so yeah. i feel like a lot of my answers are gonna be very similar to that whenever you ask me things why didn't you do this why didn't you do that well because we did the best we could even knowing that there was some consideration there's interested on its on its yeah. own and and you mentioned earlier, you know, you got a chance to speak to the late Terry Rawlins, who who edited the original Alien and an Alien Three the first time around. What what was it like collaborating with him? Well, I mean, again, when you, when you think of the word collaboration, you think that you know you're you're working there, you know, week in and week out. Was, you know, we we he came in for his interview for the documentary interviews for for Alien One and Alien Three. Lovely conversation with him, and then we kind of because it was all the same office where we were working on the new cut, we just kind of like looped him into a, a side conversation on that. And again, he was very supportive. He was very behind it all. In fact, we recorded uh, an introduction to Alien Three with him because there was no other. Since Fincher wasn't involved, he was like our voice of authority on Alien 3. So he recorded the intro and, you know, he gave us his blessing. He gave us some really encouraging words. We asked him if he knew anything that could be of use or helpful to us in terms of making this better. And, you know, he gave us his, his advice. And, you know, again, it was just it was nice to have him even briefly kind of like acknowledge what we were doing and if he had and if he had something he wanted us to do, he had the, he had the opportunity to come in and take part. But he just seemed happy that we were doing it because I think he really felt like that film got shafted in the in the post process. Well, it sort of slips into um, into his actual interviews in, in Wreckage and Rage. You know, there, there are moments where he's going, you know, hope people will appreciate it now that you're doing this kind of thing. So he he had some real good energy about, you know, about about the AC in there. That was really good. What would you say were the greatest challenges you found in creating the assembly cut? Honestly, again, it's it's the same thing. Juggling all this stuff at once, juggling the special features for four of the films, juggling the special editions of three of the films, considering this was taking place in different parts of the world, because most of the resurrection team is more, you know, Paris based, or a lot of them were. So it's like, you know, I had to go to London, I had to go to Paris, I had to get like remote crews around the world. Like Roger Christian was interviewed in India, you know, with a crew, some random crew we had never used before, haven't used since because they framed his interview this tight on the space. Um, but it's like Alien 3 was just like another big chunk of this monstrosity of a production that took place over like a year and a half in 2002 and 2003. So I can't say there's one, there was one thing except for, I think, when it came to not so much the assembly cut, because the assembly cut was... Again, not to sound like a broken record, it was a pretty dry, straightforward completion of a, an existing cut. 
the documentary and all the bonus features was a slightly different story because it was a, such a contentious and problematic shoot that you had people who, on the one hand, want to get their side of the story out. On the other hand, probably felt upset or maybe threatened or whatever by someone else giving a different version of the story. So juggling all of these different people was was tricky at times. And and even another, another person at Fox is no longer there was very worried about pissing Fincher off with any of this. You know, for the longest time, we're kind of delicately tiptoeing around the Fincher part of this all. And at some point, it was just decided that the first cut of Wreckage and Rage, which was chopped down to the making of Alien 3 that first time, was just too hot for DVD. So about a half an hour got cut out. And uh, it wasn't until the Blu-ray that the kid was no longer at Fox and, you know, clear heads prevailed and everyone sort of calmed down. They actually looked at the context of it all and understood the historical importance of it, that they allowed this uncut version to finally go out. And I actually added additional stuff to the uncut version just in case we had to cut stuff, almost like a, you know, sacrificial lambs of pieces that we'd throw up to maybe cut out. And they didn't flag anything. Everything pretty much went through. So um, what you got with the Wreckage and Rage Blu-ray cut was actually the uncut version plus some extra, and then all those enhancement pods. So um, I am totally happy with how it ultimately turned out. Getting there was tough, but once we got there, I'm extremely thankful for the generosity of everyone at Fox who not just allowed it to be happening, but supported it with just enormous resources and enthusiasm. And I think at the end of the day, again, no matter how many eggs got broken along the way, I feel like people are pretty proud of their contribution to it. And that stuff that was cut from the quadrilogy, but added back for the anthology that focused a bit more on the tension, that was the segment that was called uh, the downward spiral, right? It was mostly well, contained I, in there. If I, again, I haven't watched the chopped version of the doc because once it happened, I kind of, you know, wiped my hands of it and I took my name off of it and all that. But um, I remember we had some issues with the titles, like development hell was flagged as being <laughs> too negative. The color of blood was flagged as being too negative. Requiem for a screen was considered too negative. And I'm like, I don't see how any of this is negative at all, but Okay. <laughs> And so all those got really just chopped into like all these other kind of weird mundane titles. But in terms of the downward spiral, I feel like versions or like maybe that had been something that had been somewhat integrated into one of the cut down censored versions somehow, but like parts of it, not all of it. I don't know if the whole thing got yanked completely. You might know that better than I. It's been, it's been so, so, so long since I even looked at that original cut. But that was one of my favorite pieces of it because that showed the frustration that Fincher was going through more, more than any of them. And again, again, it was like, I don't think there was anything hurtful or mean about any of it. It was just showing very passionate, creative people who have different points of view clashing. And one could argue that person's not creative at all. They're a moron. The other person could argue the same about the other person. But that's just... A lot of film people are basically children, okay? They're basically kids who are playing with toys, just with multi-million dollar movies, you know? And I, I feel like that sensibility tends to get out in the heat of conversation sometimes. I know I've done it, and I regret it, but because you are a creative person and you just want to play with your, your clay, sometimes you sometimes you act in ways that are, are not the best. And I just think we saw some of that on at different levels of this whole project. But again, in the end, I'm really happy with the way it all kind of came together and coalesced. It just wasn't always easy. Yeah, I really like seeing those, those bits added back in. I think especially in the film industry is where you see real tension between creatives and, and the business side of things, personally. But back to the assembly cut, uh, as opposed to the process of putting together your your own feature films, were you still having to test or get final approval from for the edit from Fox? No, I mean, um, you're talking about the cut of the film, the assembly cut? Yeah. Mm-hmm. No, because once again, it was that, that long lost cut we found. We got that, they transferred the tape, that started getting circulated around. Everything, I believe, goes through legal, like the studio's legal department. And they look at it in terms of any kind of contractual issues, 
you know, release forms that maybe have been signed. I mean, just approvals, they, they go through, they just kind of go through that without so much an eye towards the creative. Like a legal person is rarely, if ever, going to say, oh, I don't like that shot or I don't like the costume that you're wearing or whatever. It's always about, oh, that's a new actor in this cut who's on the previous cut. Do we have his release or do we have his contract or his deal or whatever? Things like that had to get vetted. Again, that was not really part of my process. If we ever had a problem, they told us, but I don't recall there being any problems on Alien 3. I know with like Richard E. Grant's screen test, that was tricky. Uh, we, I don't think we got full approval. We got to use like footage of it, but without the audio, if I recall correctly. But yeah. things like that would occasionally come up. That's normal. I mean, that's 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 not rare for that to happen. You just kind of try to keep pushing as politely as you can to get as much as you can in there. But in terms of the cut of the film itself, no. So following the release of the assembly cut, you know, I think it'd be fair to say that Alien 3 went through a massive reevaluation by the fan base. You know, whenever you're on Reddit, Facebook, the forums, whatever, you know, when the topic of Alien 3 comes up, you can guarantee there's going to be someone chiming in about how you should watch the AC because it's just it's so much better than the theatrical edition. So how does it feel to have such a hand in such a huge turnaround in fandom opinion? All I can say was is that I, I just did my best to try to get it to people to see everything else was not me. You know, it's like I, I basically pushed for this and I uh, encouraged people to, to do this. And I, I just applied whatever sort of like quality control I could along the way. But it's just I as a fan, I'm just happy to finally have this cut for myself to watch. It's like a lot of these projects I work on, I very selfishly make them for myself because it's like I want to have that not only in my collection, but then to watch and enjoy um, whenever I want. So because going back to the very beginning of our conversation, that first time I saw Alien 3 in theater and I thought, oh, man, what a mess, but, but a beautiful mess. There must be something to this to then get to, you know, many years later. Oh, now I get to see what that what an early version of this film was where maybe it was on a different path before it got knocked into the path that it ended up on. I mean, I think it's fair to say, and I can't really speak for anybody, but I'll just say I think it's fair to say to assume that Fincher probably wouldn't like this version either. You know, it's like I mean, I don't, I don't even know if he'd be charitable enough to say, oh, it's maybe slightly better. You know, it, it stinks a little bit less than the other one. But I doubt I doubt he'd even say that because he probably would never even watch it. So, yeah, I, I don't know. It's like I'm glad people have reassessed it. And I'm glad that people uh, seem to be happy that they have access to it and they can watch it. But in terms of the overall perception of it, I mean, it's still a very flawed film, but I think it's an interesting flawed film. Did it ever come up in like any of the discussions with with Sigourney or or Charles or Lance or anything like that? Had any of them seen the uh, AC and commented on it? I don't remember, to be honest. Definitely not Charles, because that was a very brief session. Sigourney, perhaps. I think Sigourney, that might have come up. She seemed very curious about what we were doing. And then Lance, I don't remember exactly, because there were a lot of people in the room at Fox, um, because he was there. And uh, I don't, but you know, it's not like we hang out afterwards and we go out for a beer and talk about stuff. But I, I, I just think they were all kind of curious like why are we doing this so many years after the fact uh, and then having to explain that to them to some degree but yeah i don't i don't i, I don't we never would have, have in any scenario i can imagine having a conversation of sigourney asking me the same questions you have been asking me like the last <laughs> hour um i just don't say that would probably not happen that's fair fair enough and, and on the topic of selfish things that you would like to see done for yourself then you know, though the opinion on Alien 3 has changed for a lot of people, the, the rod puppet scenes continue to be a point of complaint, you know, with, with many mistaking it for bad CGI. I'm so sick of having to chime in and be that guy that's, you know, it's not CGI. But I know I, and I know many others would be interested in seeing a new version of Alien 3 with that compositing and that digital shadow work redone. Do you know if the original, you know, blue screen motion footage or the original, you know, plates exist? Was that something you came across in your research? 
I believe we saw some of it, but again, I hate to repeat myself. That was not the mandate. If they were to, you're do asking me if, if if I go back in time and if I could do my own version of it, perhaps. Yeah, sure. But why not just do it even better now? Like why, you know, I mean, the technology exists to make those shots far more convincing than digitally compositing those original blue, blue screen elements into the cut. Why not just do it right now with today's technology? What you're talking about is this very specific middle ground that is, yeah, it's footage that was captured for the original film, but now you want to apply 21st century technology to composite in, you could do it. And and great. I I just don't see the motivating reason to do it because it's not a pre-existing version that the filmmakers actually created. There's no filmmaker around who actually wants to supervise that or be, or take the lead on that. And to like get the studio excited to pay for the money, that's going to cost a lot of money to do that. Or you have someone, if they are interested in doing it, just do it much cheaper, much more photorealistically with technology today. It's like there's, you're talking about like so many different facets of the same dirty jewel that we're talking about. How do you clean that up and which way you want to clean it up? I think the best solution, which is probably very possible right now, but will certainly become more possible in days to come or years to come, I mean, is a, is a, a fan to do it themselves. Rip the Blu-ray or rip the 4K or whatever is available that they have to do work on and then let them at it because i feel like so many people today are just doing their own versions of things uh-huh. because of questions like this it's like you want to it's basically you want to unleash the firepower of a major studio and all those people and all that money to fix these tiny little things that annoy fanboys versus just having a fanboy do it for free at home in his basement or his garage or whatever and just have that be the new thing you know like the star wars despecialized versions and things like that i love that since we're not allowed to have those fully finished, beautifully restored versions of the original cuts. So fans are doing their own and they're not perfect. You know, they're still clunky and low res here and there and whatever, but it's good enough. It's good enough to get by until maybe one day that that might change. So same with Alien 3, same with any movie. Again, I'm not condoning piracy. <laughs> piracy. And I'm not <laughs> condoning that people steal creative authorship from the directors, the filmmakers. But if you're just doing it for yourself, you're not making money off of it. I mean, why not? You know, it's it's another form of art. It's you're, it's it's some it's a new interpretation of someone else's art that you're doing for yourself. You know, if you're making money off of it, that's a different story. Like that's no go. I think for for me, it's it's because I appreciate how good the puppet actually looks. You know, when when you see that thing, it, it is a gorgeous puppet. So personally speaking, you know, it's just about getting a chance to show that actual gorgeousness off without the um, the dodgy compositing. But that's me. But, you know, for, for all the beautiful artistry of the puppet, I, you could also argue that the physics of it don't line up with the reality of the full scale world that it's traveling around in because it's it's light. It's the weight of it's different. I mean, the, even even with masterful puppetry, it still like doesn't have that physical heft that that sized alien would have. So you could argue that, yeah, it's a beautiful puppet. But why not make a beautiful alien now with the technology we have that actually lives in that world in terms of it can react to things. The shadows it's casting can be a little bit more believable. Uh, the reflections on the dome are actually accurate to what's happening. I mean, all that type of stuff you can actually do now. Well, somebody much more talented than I. <laughs> or or I or, or a lot of us, but there are people out there, and there's and there's I swear there's kids today that are doing stuff on their own that blow away things that are costing millions of dollars more, and I, I just feel like we're going to see more and more of that right. to the point where I, I think it's going to be really interesting to see how this fusion of professional and fan. Like professional work and fan enthusiasm continue to kind of coexist and blend into like this new product. I mean, I wonder if there's a way for, I shouldn't even say what I'm about to say, so I'm going to stop saying it. I was going <laughs> to suggest that a way for studios and fans to co- like work together. I just I just don't see that happening. It's, it's really up for fans to become professionals and work in the, in the system yeah. to add their own artistry and their talent. 
I mean, t- to be fair, they were pretty good. Fox was anyway over the last few years of, of being quite involved with us, which was nice. You know, the um, the Gibson comic, have you, have you seen that? Yes, I have. That, that was something I was like, please make this. This would be good. I, I was talking to Steve Zerlin at Fox uh, I don't know, a year or two ago, and I was when he was talking to me about that, I said, why not do a comic or even like a sh- animated short of the Wooden Planet version of Alien 3? Mm-hmm. I would you like know, to the, see that the, one next. The, the, yeah. Vincent, the Vincent Ward version. It doesn't have to be the entire script, but it's to, to give us a sense of that world alive would be fascinating to see. I don't think any progress was ever forwarded on that. We talked about it, and I, I, I said that would be really cool. But again, who's your audience? Who's going to pay for it? Like that, it boils down to that. Well, to be fair, the the Gibson script I think sold a, uh, the Gibson adaptation comic sold a lot better than most of Dark Horse's original stuff. Which is why they did the audio drama, right? I don't know how that relates. Oh, okay. I never, I never spoke to Dirk about that one. But like, they're, they're coming out with random as hell. Never expected this of all things. But you know, they're coming out with adaptations of the original draft of um, Alien, the original draft of Predator. So I think they realise there's an appetite for you know that that alternate take of things. So I'm hoping we will get to see you know uh, Ward's Alien Three. Hell, I'd even, I'd even buy an adaptation of. Um, Red, yeah. as, as daft as that script was. I mean, I'd, I'd just, as a nerdy fan, you know, I'd love to see these alternate takes on things. And I think if, I don't know if it's still up, but at one point, Vincent Ward actually had his own sort of adaptation in, in like single cell comic form on, on his website. I don't know if that's still on there. But yeah, that, that, that's on there for any, well, it was for anybody interested, you know, it might be on way back. It might still be there. But that, that that's actually everything from Adam and I. But before, you know, we do open the um the waste bulkhead and let you out and without garlic killing anybody you know we we did have a couple of questions for you from various members of the avp galaxy community i feel like i already know the answer to this first one but sm would like to know what happened to aaron's line you're going to need a bigger cage than that and and why that was removed from the ac was was that just conforming where was it in the ac at some point was it ever there was it there no, on the it, was, it, was, it was in the work print Sorry. It so was, that's what I'm saying. Like, it wasn't in the long lost cut. So that's why it's not there. Yeah, fair enough. And Keys wanted to know about Murphy's line calling to Spike. He says the audio of Murphy calling out to Spike the dog in the vent shaft was muted in the UK quadrilogy DVD box set version of the assembly cut. As so no dog appeared in that cut, but restored for the US version and later the anthology Blu-ray. Was it decided that it made more sense for him to be calling out to something with the audience filling in the blanks rather than the silence in that scene? So when you're putting multiple versions of a film on one disc, you you use this technology called seamless branching. So basically you're just putting on the chunks that are different, the video and audio that are different. And then you program it so that the player basically skips between, you know, your kind of your baseline foundation version of the film. And then it'll skip to the new bit that you want to go and then it'll skip back seamlessly. So you can't tell that it's basically just pieces versus having to put two entire versions down on a disc, which would really kill your bit rate and probably wouldn't even fit in many cases. So when, you, when you're dealing with these little tiny chunks or in some cases several minutes, there is the potential for error. I don't know, to be honest, because I, I don't handle the branching part of it myself. I don't know if there was a branch in and out on the time code that was in one region and not another, or it was a mistake in one region and then another region tried to fix it. I'm not 100% sure what the decision-making process was on that. All we do is we deliver the film and then the, the pieces of the film that need to get like basically brought into the system. And then from that point on, you've got a ton of people that are basically working to make this all work and fit. And they, they're basically programmers that are programming the disc to give you not just the film and then all your audio 
audio tracks and not only all the extras, but also the menus and the different languages. So to answer this particular question, I'm not 100% sure. I can only imagine it might have either been a branching problem that didn't get communicated from one territory to another. But I don't believe it was, I don't remember it ever being a creative decision ever made at any point. Like we never sat around thinking, should this line be in, should it be out? I think it was probably just someone along, someone way down the road decided, oh, this makes sense. It were, were in my world that I'm in, but then someone else in a different world might have said, oh, this doesn't make any sense. They took it out. I don't know, to be honest. And Open Maw asks, was he a droid? No preamble, simply was he a droid? What are your thoughts on that debate? No, he was not a droid. He has a high tolerance for pain, though. <laughs> like I, I would not be walking around with my ear hanging off, having a full-on conversation. I just don't think he was a droid because... You know what? That's a great question, because I don't know if Waylon Yatani would send the real guy, but why would he not have white ash milk coming out? Uh, it makes no sense. Again, Alien 3 is such a weird anomaly in and of itself, because, for instance, you see the cryo-freeze chambers in Aliens on Sulaco being one design, but then in the EEV, they're totally different. Now, you could argue maybe somewhere along the way, there's like a little subpod inside the cryo chamber that spits out into the EEV. But I just feel like Fincher was trying to tap into his love of the original Alien. So a lot of his choices were kind of already didn't care about continuity and the, the way a fan cares about continuity. So I would say he's probably human. And by the way, this isn't a preamble, it's a postamble because I answered the question. I, I think he's human just because it's red blood and he seems really genuinely concerned for Ripley, especially when she sacrificed herself. You could argue, oh no, she's killing the alien inside of her. But I just feel like it's a testament to Lance Henriksen's performance that you don't really know, except he seems like a, a friendly face, like he says he, says he is. So yeah, really convoluted <laughs> answer. I think he's I think he's I think he's human, but I do weird I, I do think it's weird that his ear is just hanging off and he doesn't seem to have a problem with it. Yeah, I'm not sure how uh, familiar you are with the much maligned 2013 video game Colonial Marines, but it does revisit those events of Alien 3. And and at the time they were selling that game as canon, but I don't think it's considered as such now. But that one definitely established that he, he was a droid in that one. Some of the earlier drafts of, of Finch's version of, of 3, at least one of them, had Bishop 2, Michael Bishop, whatever, die when he got hit. <laughs> it's literally just cracking around Eddie drops down dead and the scientist Mitsua something like that I think one of his names came from he ended up stepping up and taking over the rest of all all um, Bishop's lines at that point so he was definitely human at some point during scripting for sure yeah. but also I mean just look at the other films I know I realize Alien 3 is an outlier in many ways but, but, but I think that if you look at Alien 1 Ash has white liquid Aliens Bishop has white liquid Resurrection Call has white liquid I believe so I think that's a common staple to androids in the alien universe that it'd be weird that somewhere along the line Wayland Yutani decided to send out a bishop-style droid that had red blood just in case he got <laughs> wounded. Yeah. You know, and then Ripley would say, oh, you're not real. I don't, you know, it just seems a little bit of a stretch to me. So I think he's real. There were a few comics that did go with the red blood angle. And Aaron, didn't you say there was a novel recently that the the Three World War arc, right? In the android in that? Oh, Sarada. I don't remember, actually. I can't, I can't remember any of them yeah. having red blood. And I could have sworn one of the more recent books was like they have red blood on the surface or something. Uh, and then the underlayers. I'll have to look that back up. I could have sworn I saw that somewhere. Anyway. <laughs> um, but to the next question, we had a few variations on the question of which cut of Alien 3 you prefer, whether you like it better with or without the Gallic subplot. However, I think the best amalgamation of those questions is what is your perfect cut of, of Alien 3? And, and was that the assembly cut? Or and I know we've already kind of gone over this a bit, but could you take it further, do you think? Well, again, prefacing this by saying it would be total fan edit territory, but I feel like take the assembly cut, but use the dog burster instead of the ox burster, even though I love that footage. And I think it's 
essential to see as a fan. But if you're like looking at just a, a cut of the film, I would say basically somebody cut, but with the dog instead of the ox with man, I'm really torn on the chestburster at the end, Ripley's chestburster, because I feel like not seeing it kind of really emphasizes the sacrifice she's making, but it's not as satisfying because what if she was wrong or what if she misread the bioscan or what, you know, any, there's any number of things you could think about not seeing the chestburster or the queenburster at the end. So I think, I think I would include queenburster, even though it is, I, I get why people hate it, but I would go with that probably. And um, that's probably mostly it in terms of what my perfect cut would be i probably watched the assembly cut more than the other version just because i think it's more interesting i'm not saying it's better i'm not saying it works better i just think it's a more interesting failure than, <laughs> than the original than the, than the theatrical and that, and look there's amazing craft at work in this movie i mean beyond fincher's direction i mean the production design that norman reynolds did the uh, cinematography that alex thompson did i mean just like or that jordan cronowitz did a lot of in the early days just, I mean, just the work, the costumes, the the everything, the actors. I mean, it's such a beautifully crafted film. It's just, it just has this, they used like the wrong glue to keep it all together. And that's why it kind of falls apart. And that glue is usually a combination of studio, producer, and just overall oversight. Because another thing, if you look at it, the Alien films, even though Walter Hill and David Geiler were kind of like in many ways overseeing a lot of it as producers. I don't really feel like they ever got the the, the presence established. They don't they never, didn't quite plant the flag as the George Lucas style creator of it all or the person who's going to like really decide the future. I think they interfa- interfaced with the studio whenever there was talk of a new alien film. They threw in their two cents. They probably tried to exert some sort of creative impact on the project, but I don't feel like they were ever there as like the, the sage that you go up to the mountaintop to get the real answer from so alien the alien series really never had that kind of oversight until i would arguably say until ridley came back with prometheus so yeah i don't know it's 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 i can't really say that there's a, an official version i think it's absolutely better of alien 3 i think just watch the version you want to watch and like that's it boils down to that really i feel like seven out of ten times i'd watch the, the assembly cut over the theatrical i very rarely watch the theatrical these days so always the assembly yeah i think that's the same for most people but yeah, I, I do completely agree with you. I don't think there's any p- necessarily perfect court of, of the film because it, it, the script was never perfected in the first place. So, well, this this one isn't related to Alien 3 specifically, but, but for a member, Evanus would like to know your opinion on the Fox and Disney merger and what that means for the Alien franchise. Yeah, it's really interesting, given that Disney is is famous for more four-quadrant family-friendly entertainment. I mean, at least as far as PG-13 being kind of like the the cap on what a lot of their titles have been you know and i'd be curious to see what direction they could go in presumably using 20th century studios yeah i would love to see more alien just as long as it's done well and it's hard to really lock in on what well means anymore when it comes to alien because it's been all over the map There's been some really great work in that universe, and there's been some questionable work, and then sometimes both in the same movie. So it's it's tricky. All I can say is if you, I think if you get not just a filmmaker who has a really sharp take on what you could do in this world, I don't think you need someone necessarily who is beholden to what's come before. I don't think you want a fanboy director to go in and say, oh, look, I'm using the William Tiny logo in the background here. Isn't that cool? Like, that's, I don't care about that stuff. Or, you know, or here's the, the beer can. <laughs> That stuff's not that important. It's more about what's true to the universe, what's true to the characters, and how does the alien impact 
their life, their survival, their moment-to-moment existence uh, in whatever pressure cooker situation they find themselves in. I personally think that they should keep it simple and go back to basics. Not, I don't mean go back to space jockeys, engineers in terms of like prequel territory, but I mean like go back to making it about interesting characters who are put into an impossible survival situation. Hopefully, if Disney wants to continue Alien, they will tap into that versus overcomplicating things and trying to make it more about the overall lore of all the films and the comics and the games and everything else we've seen from Alien. I mean, you look at what's happening with Star Wars and there's some great parts of the new Star Wars and there's some parts that maybe could have been better, but that's a massive undertaking to like track all of these things they're producing because it's movies, it's TV, it's games, it's comics, it's toys, it's all this stuff. And they have people there that track all this to make sure it all lines up and it all makes sense. In a way, I feel like that could be binding. They could really like kind of like straightjacket you into creative corners that maybe aren't the best for what you're doing. That's a long answer to I hope they continue, but I hope they do it well and they look at what, what did, what's been done in the past and, and learn from what's been done in the past and, and hopefully move forward with something new and original and um, that captures the spirit of the films without having to worry about the canon the continuity of it. Now you've had a few features under your belt, would you ever be tempted to try and pitch one, pitch an alien film? Well, I've had one feature um, and a lot of shorts, uh, but thank you. <laughs> I, uh, <laughs> no, I mean, yeah, of course, I would love to. It goes without saying, I would love to do that. I just feel like at this at this level that they're working at, I mean, it's going to, whatever director is next is going to be a Ridley or someone of that caliber or someone like an, an A-list director, because that's what those studios, big studios do now. It's like they go with sure shot, you know, people that have proven time and time again, they, they deliver the goods. Even if creatively you might not always agree with them, people show up for their movies. So to bring in a virtual nobody who might love Alien dearly and might have a good take on it seems like um, a bit of a stretch, but maybe there's a, a more independent world to, to work in here. I mean, I think it would be great, frankly, and this is true of many franchises. I think it'd be great if there was different tiers of like A-plus blockbuster, big Friday night Avengers style movies for those people. But then within that same Marvel universe, do something that it's more like I don't, I'm not even talking TV. I'm talking about like indie film, uh-huh. like you know something that's like 15 million dollars or less to produce. It's more character driven. It's more earthbound. It's just more about the people behind the costumes or the suits or whatever. Apply that to Alien. You know, make it make it like it's not about having to create these vast planets and these vast things and big action or whatever. It's basically about survival. You know, and there are a lot of great horror films that basically stole from Alien, from the original Alien, that are in their own right are great because they had to use creativity to keep it cheap, keep it small, but make it about the characters moment to moment survival. And I think that could be well applied to Alien if there was like maybe I don't maybe with Disney Plus or there's some 20th century plus version on the horizon I don't know but if there's some version of streaming content where you could have an original alien story that's not connected to a big big movie but is just sort of like streaming content then maybe you'd have more flexibility and freedom to explore different parts of this universe and come up with more interesting things that we haven't seen before because the stakes are lower financially you don't have to you don't have to like worry about all the money you're spending because you're keeping it a bit more grounded did you ever see the 40th anniversary shorts? I did. I did. I thought a couple of them were really, really good. I was really impressed with a couple of them. And I think that they all had their hearts in the right place. You know, they, you could tell they didn't have any money. But having, having, having said that, I thought they did a hell of a job with the little money that they did have. And I think like one or two of them I was really impressed by. Uh, okay. What did you, I mean, what did you think of them? The, the only one I didn't like, well, the, the, there was one I really didn't like, which was, um, what was it called? Night Shift, which yeah, was... the one with the warehouse, yeah. yeah Although the, the director actually sent us a extended cut he did for that that Fox requested trimmed, and I I personally thought it helped a lot. I actually haven't got around to watching it yet. 
What? You I know. Seen I'm the one that I'm the one that rags on you for not watching these things. <laughs> and there were two I thought were merely okay. No, there was one I thought was merely okay, which was the shuttle one, where they're all trapped in the shuttle. I thought that could have been a lot better than it was. I thought the concept was really good. And the the other four I I genuinely enjoyed. I mean, my favourite was actually the the one with the broken android who who essentially had the face hugger as a pet and you know i thought i thought the the creature work on the the hugger could have been better but i thought that was a fascinating concept i i loved that it went so different with with that take on on alien yeah i love the the 40th anniversary shorts and part of it for me was i got a really cool experience of actually seeing it in a theater uh fox had had me and another former staffer out and it was just so cool seeing that i hope they actually released that in some form in the future on like a physical format and i know the 35th anniversary of aliens is coming up so if they did the same kind of fan film competition but with the aliens aesthetic instead of the alien aesthetic that would be cool to see Um, on, on a wider note, though, J.W. Rinsler joined the rank of alien historians recently with this fantastic making of Alien, um, which was last year that got released. And he's got Aliens on the way this year. Uh, I know you've read Alien, but have you had a chance to read Aliens? If so, I was wondering about your thoughts on, on his work and uh, how you'd feel about seeing him perhaps try and tackle Alien 3. Well, I mean, I'm a big fan of Jonathan's. Um, I really love his deep dive approach, but not just in terms of like facts and figures and data, but also just you feel like you're there. Uh, you feel like you're in the room. It seems like you're, I don't know, it's, it's kind of a more intimate read to me because I feel like you are, not that you're a participant exactly, but you're definitely a fly on the wall. And um, so, you know, having read his his Star Wars books and some of his other books, I, I was expecting the Making of Alien book to be really, really good, but I was blown away by how good it was because Alien has been so, I don't want to say over-documented, but it's been pretty well documented over the years multiple documentaries multiple approaches to the making of the movie and i was fortunate enough to read he sent me a copy early early on because we had we had spoken on the phone when he was just starting on the making of alien and just to kind of like talk a bit about what to look for and what things that maybe i wasn't allowed to go into or include in the in the documentaries or the special features so we had a really great conversation and i and i gave him a lot of the uh, photography that my team and i had amassed for the DVD and Blu-ray Alien releases. So um, when the book came out, I was just, I was floored by like how much material and like, again, really closed door material he managed to dig up and get into the book so that it felt like I was still learning uh, about Alien and I, and I was really excited about that. So he then approached me with the same kind of phone call conversation on Aliens when, when he was starting his Making of Aliens book. And and again, it's like I, I kind of like gave him my thoughts on some of the stories we covered in the documentary that are interesting or fun or maybe some other things he wanted to look into. And, and once again, he gave he sent me an early copy of the, Alien, the Making of Aliens book uh, last year. And I, um, I, love, I love that as well. Well, I mean, that was like, I mean, again, the guy can seemingly do no wrong when it comes to going deep on on some of these books. I mentioned to him, I said, you know, if you ever want to get around to Alien 3, my joke was that, you know, the book would be the size of a Volkswagen because it's like, it was, it was, you know, <laughs> it's, 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 there's a lot to go into on Alien 3. And he wasn't, he didn't seem sure that maybe the studio, especially now that Disney is, is calling the shots, would be interested in that. But if I think there's a good reaction, if there's a lot of strong sales and positive feedback on the making of Aliens book, then perhaps somewhere along the line, someone might ask the question, oh, how do we continue this? And then boom, Alien 3 has like the most juicy behind the scenes story of all. And with someone as talented and thorough as Jonathan tends to be, I think he would go deeper than I could ever go in my documentary. And I think he'll dig up all kinds of new great stuff for that. Because he also, as a, as a writer, he has the, uh, I don't call it the luxury, but he has the ability to 
kind of harvest quotes from other sources, from other magazine articles and other sources. And um, I can't really. I mean, the only sources I can use are what the studio has uh, in its vault, like what it owns. And anything else would be, well, if I get lucky and a reporter did an audio recording in an interview with somebody, maybe I could incorporate that somehow. But to just put a box of text on a TV screen, that would get pretty dry and pretty, you know, ho-hum. And I feel like in a book, when that's the world you're in, he can go much deeper. So I hope he gets to do it. But I will say his, his Making of Aliens book is fantastic. I hope everyone checks it out when it comes out. Uh, I don't know when the new release date is. It's been changed a few times. But given the, the world today, <laughs> who knows when it'll come out. Isn't it so, September, Aaron, I think? I think September's about okay. right, yeah. Well, it's really great. There's, there's a lot of amazing stuff in it. And I'm sure I'm sure there's hardcore Aliens fans, as there were with Alien fans, who'll say, well, I'm not sure about that fact. Or that's things misspelled or whatever. But it's like, if you just look at the, the wealth of information, the bulk of stuff that he offers that really takes you so deep into the process, I think it's... Yeah, I, I love his work. He's 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 very inspirational to me. It's like it, now more than ever, if I were to do another deep dive documentary on some film, I would probably really try to channel his approach, but just in video form. I really think he's he's top of the line. It's funny because the the first the first thing I ask when this stuff comes out, you know, I, I'm so spoiled by you that the first thing I ask is, what's this going to do different to Charles? So <laughs> that's a funny little flip about there. But yeah, if you have not read The Making of Alien, buy that fucking book because it was brilliant. So so interesting. And if Aliens is, is anywhere near as good as that, you know, get that on pre-order as well for sure. Well, that's it. That's all of our questions. Before we sign off, is there just anything you'd like to share? Any anecdote, story, thought that we just haven't given you the opportunity to express with with any of our questions? Look, I'll say this, and I said it before, I'll say it again. It's been 17 years since since the quadrilogy. It's been 10 since the anthology. And I I apologize in advance if I got something wrong or if I misremembered something. I'm old. <laughs> it's been a long time. No, it's like it's it's just that it's after working on so many projects over such a long period of time, even the things you love, it all it all becomes a bit of a, a nest of different different memories, different thoughts and whatnot. So um I'm sure I said something wrong in this and I apologize. And I'm sure someone will nail me on your message boards about it. But you know, I see things wrong on the on your message boards too all the time, which I just I just I'm so <laughs> tempted to just like sign in and it's like, no, that's wrong. But um anyway, I, I'm just I'm glad people care still about Alien and Alien Three. And I just thank you for giving me something to do during my uh, my <laughs> quarantine here at home, just sitting around, you know, twiddling my thumbs. It's nice to uh, you know go through some some old memories and talk about stuff that I was a part of. It's 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 fun. Just just don't, just don't ask don't ask me about Alien Resurrection. That's all I ask. But everything else. <laughs> yes, you you always seem so um, blah about resurrection when when that one comes up and i can't fault you it's 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 it's, it's, it's painful because the amount of talent that worked on resurrection yeah it, it's it's painful because you're like amazing filmmakers amazing actors I mean, like everybody who worked on resurrection is kind of a genius in their own way and it's like what happened <laughs> you know but uh you know mm-hmm. again a lot a lot of good work went into that film it was just the final product uh went somewhere else i have the exact same fascination uh, with that one so obviously at the minute with all this COVID chaos, I'm assuming you can't really say with any any definite plugging as, as to where people can catch Love Bite. Love Bite. Yeah. So <laughs> it was it was it was crazy. So Love Bite is basically about a couple of different political points of view arguing over how a virus spreads. <laughs> over how, how this global oh, like zombie pandemic spreads. And it's like they bet they're they basically engage in a bet. 
into who's right and who's wrong about how the virus spreads because they don't, they're not 100% sure how it spreads. We shot that last year and we premiered it in Spain at the Siege Film Festival in October of last year. So we had no clue what was yet to come in terms of the real world of it. And of course, we got a really nice festival run lined up. We had like a dozen festivals that we're, we're getting ready to go to and all that. And then we started hearing the word about the coronavirus. And, you know, it, it was it was at first it was kind of interesting because we thought, oh, wow, it's just like our movie. And then I mean, not like we don't have you know zombies in the real world, but it's kind of like, you know, it's, it's there, there's some interesting parallels. And then slowly it became it became much more serious and deadly and existential. And I uh, as I was expecting, every festival, all those dozens just started like postponing, rescheduling, canceling. And now the next chapter of this is they're going virtual. So there's going to be more virtual festivals happening. So like a festival I was really looking forward to, which is one of my favorite festivals, the Chattanooga Film Festival. I went last year and had an amazing time. So they're going virtual. They just teamed with Microsoft and a bunch of other partner companies to go virtual, like basically one of the very first big film festivals to go virtual. So we'll be a part of that. And there's like two or three others that are going virtual that we'll be a part of. And then all the rest, we're kind of waiting to hear how they want to play it. Do they just want to wait this out? Because they basically said all the films that have been accepted for 2020 will carry on into whatever, whenever the next festival is. So do we wait it out until it's safe to go to a theater again? I don't know when that's going to be. I don't know when I'm going to feel comfortable going to a theater again, to be honest, because a, a film festival is all about connecting with people and meeting people and being in close proximity with people and enjoying going to parties and going to like networking events and things like that. And now we're all going to be either in masks or safe distancing and all that stuff. And I don't know what the world is for films, film festivals, and my tiny little short film, Love Bite, which is trying to make its way through this this pandemic. So uh, again, it's it's small potatoes. It's not really that important in the greater scheme of things, but it's a film I'm proud of. I'm really happy with the way it turned out. And the fact that we've been getting into quite a few festivals was a hopeful sign. So now we'll just wait and see. What's the new world for a film like mine, which is a short, but relies on film festivals to get out to people? And so we'll see if maybe more become virtual, if maybe we get a streaming deal of some kind. These are all questions that have yet to be answered, and I, I think it's still early days. And we'll, I'll be very curious to see how the Chattanooga Virtual Film Festival happens and how it uh, and how people like it or not, or what, what can be learned from it. But the fact that they have Microsoft, or, you know, a huge company like that behind them, I'm assuming they're going to step out with their best foot forward and do a good job. Well, hopefully I'll get a chance to watch that one. I've been watching you share all the bits. I was like, waiting, waiting for a chance, <laughs> waiting for a chance. That, that's the thing is like, even with a short film, it's like you have to withhold it for that your festival run, because once you put it on YouTube, then it's done. Like, who cares? So you have to hold it back until you, you've exhausted your festival run or you get a streaming deal or whatever. And then you can put it out for people. But um, yeah, it sucks. I've been I've been wanting to share it with all my friends. And, uh, you know, some have seen it, obviously, but I, I just feel like we're in this very weird holding pattern right now. Just waiting to see, OK, what's what's next? How do we how do we do it correctly? And, and by the way, it's also, it's kind of like, I feel inappropriate to come out hyping your film about a, a viral pandemic right when real people are dying, you know, when like hundreds of thousands of people are going to die. And it's like, man, I don't feel comfortable hyping my little film that's kind of loosely on the periphery of that story. Oh, people people are morbid. I mean, yeah, I think some of the most some of the most watched movies on Netflix right now are um, uh, contagion and outbreak. Yeah. So don't get me wrong. I want them to watch it. I just, <laughs> I just don't feel like going out and trumpeting like, Hey, check out my new film, which 
so anyway, I've never been good at that anyway. I'm not good at like piping stuff. All I do is try to, sh- I just try to share information and share what we're working on. And I'm not good at the whole like Ringling Brothers, P.T. Barnum, you know, <laughs> trying to get the word out. But hopefully, hopefully we'll find a, a, a healthy, safe way forward with all this stuff soon. But, but it's more important that it's safe than soon. Is, is there anything or any channels that you would like to at least shout out um, before we plug our own stuff? No, I mean, um, I'm pretty active on social media, so you can always find me there. But other than that, uh, right now, again, holding pattern, you know, lockdown, roll out of bed, <laughs> figure out what I'm going to do every day, roll back into bed. Fair enough. Yeah. In, in that case, Adam, since I fucking hate doing them, do you want to um, trumpet, blow our trumpet? Sure. If you'd like to check out our message boards, you can find us on our website, which is avpgalaxy.net. And we're also on all the major socials. Just search AVP Galaxy or Alien vs. Predator Galaxy on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. And we're starting to build our YouTube channel as well. So check us out there. And uh, if you are listening to this, listening to this rather than watching it, this will be up on video form on said YouTube channel. So yes. not only do you hear our beautiful voices, you see our beautiful faces as well. So um Wait, what? You didn't tell me that. <laughs> I did. That's why I told you pants were optional. Yeah. But yeah, thank thank you everybody for listening um, or watching, whichever. Thank you, Charles, for coming on to join us. Thanks for having me. This is Aaron. And this is Adam. And this is uh, Charles Lazarica. And this is Rumor Control. And here are the facts. <laughs>